I am ready to die. Here, among the things I value. I am ready to let you kill me, but I am not ready to listen to you justify the act. Hello and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 11, where we are talking about Bounty, mm. written by Terry Nation, directed by Pennant Roberts, his fourth story for the season. First broadcast on the 13th of March, 1978. The ratings here, almost up to 10 million, 9.6 million in fact. So Which a jump a up. a bit of a jump, yeah, from yeah. last week, yeah. Yeah, so the, the series is doing well. The, the audience is fluctuating, but it's not mm. going down, which is good to see. Before we get into the episode, we should just mention that you may have noticed our last couple of episodes weren't quite on schedule. <laughs> the truth is we've actually been working quite hard wrapping up the Goodies Pirate podcast. Yes, and that did become a bit of an undertaking at the end. It, it did. A couple of those final specials that, you know, we wanted to wrap up the podcast properly after 80 episodes, and a couple of those <laughs> last specials did take a bit out of us, but the Goodies is done. It was a lot of fun, but Blake Seven all the way now. Yes, that's right. So we're, we're back and committed and focused. So, it's my pleasure to take us through the episode Bounty, which means, Richard, you get first dibs at what did you think of this one? Right. We've talked a few times about the pressure that they were under filming Series A. And how that built up over the time. Yes. This is probably the point where the production hits the metaphorical wall, I think. I thought, look, there are some interesting ideas here, and some good performances too, actually. But I think it's fairly well known that by this point, Terry Nation was struggling to keep up the pace with delivering the scripts. You can have a redraft of this, or you can have next week's script. But you can't have both. Yes. It was okay. It's done in a bit of a rush. It's clearly very heavily padded. If you add to that a bit of a bland production and some sort of 70s casual racism, you're left with a bit of an uninspiring mix, I think, really. Yeah, look, I'm not going to disagree with anything you said. Last episode, I was a little bit harsh, perhaps, on Breakdown. Not, not that I resolved any of those opinions, but <laughs> no doubt I was highlighting the negatives there in what was an okay episode. There's no doubt, as you said, of the last four episodes of this season, they all just ran out of time and money. I think so. They are really up against the clock by this stage of the series the studio recording for this is the night that duel goes to air so they're only about three weeks ahead so they are really under immense pressure by this stage yeah breakdown at least has got a few different threads going through that kind Mm. of lets it hold together deliverance and aura i think got a bit more love and attention because they were uh, essentially a two-part season finale Mm. bounty has completely fallen through the cracks i do think that shows as i was doing my notes for this i did note there are some very interesting ideas here with more time, another draft, more time to actually get the yeah. direction going, this could have been an okay episode. Look, they didn't have that time, and as a result, it, it is very poor. I think it is... Look, I'll say it. I think it's the weakest episode of the first season, <laughs> if not the first two seasons. We did say before we turned the mic on we weren't going to kick it. But... No, I'm not going to kick it to death. I'm not going to kick it to death. I do think it's a very weak episode, though, and we, we're going to have a look yeah, at Yeah, look, it, it probably would be my choice for, I think, the weakest of series. And, and as you sort of alluded to, the problem is that in the second half... There are some aspects that we'll talk about. Not, again, not going to kick it, but we'll talk about mm. them, which turns it from being a dull episode to slightly awkward, if not unpleasant, to watch episode. And, and that is unfortunate. 
We talked a minute ago about Terry Nation sort of struggling to deliver scripts. This one, the script ran for less than 30 minutes when they first worked through it. So Chris Boucher added a fair bit of material to it. The character of Tice is completely his creation. And there are a lot of scenes you can see which are just padding, you know, and they've been pushed out as long as they can. Yes, well, that's the next thing, because when they sort of came to record it, they then found it was still underrunning. So, of course, we now have to pad as much as we can. Yes, you get lots of very 2001-esque sort of scenes of just watching the car drive past, watching Sarkov slowly pace around his room, watching Blake explore the museum yes. very slowly. Lots of conversations that are very... So, you would do this. Pause. Yes. Pause. <laughs> you, know, you can feel them trying to stretch it. Anyway, we'll, look, we'll get into it because we're not here to kick it. We, we do want to discuss No, it. we're not. So, as I said, it's my, my job to lead us through this one. So, I've broken it up into a few different plot points yep. or, or plot threads that we're going to have a chat about. The first one, obviously, I think is what the main thrust of the episode is about, and that is the Lindor strategy. So, what we have is, if you piece together all the bits of conversation, Sarkov was president of Lindor for about five years. That's right. In that time, he... Is it interesting that that's about the term of a UK government? Yeah, could be, could be. In that time, he notes that he actively resisted the Federation, despite, obviously, there was some debate on his home planet. He called a vote, he lost in a landslide, and he was so shattered by that that he took himself off into exile, and the Federation have very kindly offered to look after him there. Blake certainly indicates that deep down Sarkov knows he's actually a prisoner, but the, mm. the Federation sort of treat him very nicely and he has dinner with the base commander. And... Yes, he can maintain the illusion. Yeah, that's right. What Blake says is that the vote was actually rigged by the Federation. Mm-hmm. It was part of their strategy to get Sarkov off there. The planet is now tipping into civil war, which was seven years ago, so it's taken mm. a while for this society to disintegrate. Yes, that was one of the notes I had. The Lindor strategy is a very long game, really. It is a very long game. I noted that as well. But the ultimate aim is that when Lindor does tip into a full-on civil war, the Federation can come in as peacekeepers, occupy the planet, and bring Sarkov back as a puppet dictator. Yes. The first question I had was really, why is Lindor so important? Is, is it this week's most valuable thing in the universe is found on Lindor? The other thing is, though, it's interesting that the Federation have to maintain this pretense of doing things properly. You do wonder who it is who's actually going to complain if they would just move in and annex the place. Yeah, I had those same thoughts as well, and the head canon that I've got is that Lindor is one of the larger, more established worlds. It's not mm. just a frontier colony or a farming planet like somewhere like Destiny or none of the other planets we see. This, this is a big, well-established planet. It's got its own independent government, its president, yeah. all that sort of thing. And it would be a bad look for the Federation to sort of come in guns blazing if they mm. can possibly help it. Hence, they are willing to engineer that idea. And that's a really cool idea at the core of the episode. I think whatever else you say about this one... Yes, indeed. That's a good idea. I guess that sort of reinforces the idea that, look, the Federation is the dominant human authority or human system... But there's obviously quite a lot of non-aligned worlds, to use a Babylon 5 term, that are really independent. Yes, and certainly I think Lindor would be one of the earlier ones colonised, for example. Now, again, where we talked about this episode needing another draft, I think there are problems in the strategy that do come through. The big one is, I think, Sarkov himself. Mm. Based on the character that we see here, I actually did struggle to imagine him as that sort of inspirational 
you know, whether you're talking like a John F. Kennedy type character yeah. or, you know, or someone like Pavel in the Eastern Europe, he didn't come across like that. And in fact, we'll, we'll talk about this again in a bit more detail in a moment. Blake's strategy is undermined a bit by the fact that this guy just doesn't seem to care anymore. No, he's very clearly a broken man yes. by this stage. He feels his people have just utterly rejected him. Yes, and the Liberation book does make an interesting point here that that might work better if he was actually a hereditary monarch mm. who, who had been rejected by his people rather than a president who you know, would have political skills and opinion polling and be in touch with the population. This doesn't feel like David Cameron losing the Brexit vote and going quietly, <laughs> but still being a very engaging politician. Mm. This just feels... I, I don't know. Again, it needs another draft, and I think it needs a director who is appreciating the subtleties and the intent of the script mm. and getting that from the actors. And that's something we're going to return to, unfortunately, I think, as we go through this episode. So let's move on from the strategy itself to Sarkov the Man. Yeah, well, I suppose before we meet Sarkov the Man, of course, we go through probably a good 15 minutes of Blake and Kelly creeping around outside trying to infiltrate past the security guards. Yeah, and it's interesting just how many people are going to try and kidnap Sarkov. The only guard I get, but they've got this full system of detectors and alerts and Yeah, and, and, you know, and they make the point that Blake's already passed through two of their security perimeters. So uh, Yeah, well, presumably the base commander's complex, whatever, is mm. some distance away because they yes. go there by motor car. <laughs> and we first see Sarkov driving along in his motor car with his cape and big hat to denote that he's a bit of an eccentric sort of character. Yes, Blake does sort of call that out, that it's a very elaborate honour guard and clearly he's not totally unimportant, that he is under very heavy security. And I guess some of that probably is to maintain the illusion that the Federation respect him, Mm. so that when they do install him as the puppet ruler, he is indebted to them and there's a good relationship. Kind of like the way that the Japanese treated the last emperor of China. Whilst they were grooming him to be the puppet yes. um, the puppet ruler of Manchuria, they're all very nice to him, and the mm. moment they put him back on his throne, it's like, no, no, you do what you're told. While we're talking about getting to President Sarkov, let's just have a talk about what goes on outside, because those guards are bloody useless. Well, you do wonder, given it's really they're looking after one prisoner and what's revealed to be his daughter, ostensibly as an honour guard, you do wonder whether they're A, either fairly ill-disciplined and sloppy because they're they're able to relax. Or whether it's where they post people who upset them. (laughs) I like that. You know, you get a black mark on your card and that's where you're posted. Yeah, go look after Sarkov for a bit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that makes sense. But even to the point that after the guards are aware that there are intruders, Blake gets about 15 minutes to chat to Sarkov. Yes. Now, if he was an assassin, it's it's, it's over and done. And the guards are quite hopeful. I mean, you see Cheney berating the one clearly who hasn't bothered telling him that one of his comrades is missing. Yeah. I did have one note actually just about the start. It's interesting for a script that's really underrunning that they start in the action. It starts with Kelly mm. creeping around in the grounds. In her leopard skin coat. Yes, and high heel boots that she then climbs the towel. And, and what makes that odder is that Blake's in their surface gear and Kelly's in a... Mm designer coat and high heels. Yeah, because I had the note here that you would think if they were trying to kill a couple of minutes, you would have the opening scene on the Liberator where they establish we're in orbit around Lindor and they have the talk about why they're here. But it's actually good that they don't do this, I think. It is actually a very good opening. The first Mm. few minutes I was quite impressed by. Yeah. And Kelly... (laughs) I mean, look, there is a bit where she's obviously in plain view of the guards (laughs) and they don't see her. Yeah, and that rush direction is a thread. But they at least... 
give Kelly something to do. You know, she climbs up, mm. she jumps down to the guard. That it's, is a really good... It's a really good fall. It probably wasn't, unfortunately, for the poor stunt lady, but... It's just a shame, though, that sort of landing next to the guard is enough to knock them out. Yeah. <laughs> but, but again, at least they're trying to do something different. Yes. So we meet Sarkov, we get more of his eccentricity, we see his collection, which conveniently is items from the period at which the TV show is being made. Yes, that's right, <laughs> they can just go straight down to the BBC prop cupboard. Yep, what have you got? Oh, yep, we've got some moths, you can have those. <laughs> we've got this painting of Churchill, you can have that. Yes. Yeah, yes, is... a gramophone player and some 78 RPM records. Yep, something that's outside of copyright, please. <laughs> And look, it does build this guy up to be a nice, eccentric, interesting sort of character. Yes, and I suppose it reinforces that idea that he's really just broken. These are the only things left that he really values. And he very much, when Blake comes in, he's ready to die. He has accepted this is the moment and I'm ready. I'd like to die listening to my favourite song. Just do it quickly, please. Yes. Where else would I go? This is all I have left. Where he pulls the gun on Blake, I sort of interpreted that really as that's to force Blake to actually do it and just do it quickly. Yeah. Well, I don't know why, because it's not loaded. So Mm. I sort of took the thing he points the gun. He's obviously expecting Blake to whip out whatever it is and just do it. Mm. Okay. Because he says he doesn't want to be talked to death. I get you're a political assassin. You know, he goes through his whole spiel about political assassination is a viable tool and whatever. Assassination has always been a legitimate tool of statecraft. Its respectability and public acceptance has varied from civilization to civilization, but its practical application has remained remarkably consistent. But just do it quickly before I get bored. Uh, well, I think he is bored, and that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, the drama for the next 10 minutes is basically Blake saying, Come with me. No. Oh, please. No. <laughs> And then Blake almost sort of gives up and then Tice comes in and says, oh, come on, go with him. No. No, come on, it'll be fun. No. (laughs) Until you get Blake smashing the record. In the end, interestingly, Blake can't persuade him to go. He has to force him to go effectively. But you do see that, again, that ruthless streak from Blake. It only takes one record, though, for... (laughs) Sarkov to change his mind. I thought they could have gone a little bit further with well, that. Well, you know, you, you, you can borrow the props. You can't <laughs> smash them. So Sarkov does end up going back during the course of the story. He finds something worth fighting for, which is mm. his daughter. You can tell, as you said earlier, that the Tice subplot has been written in because she clearly in the first half is just... PA, if you like. We're not told that she's his daughter until right near the end of the episode. No. So you are sort of left with this thing, is she just his assistant, or is she a bodyguard? Is or she... his companion? Yes. In, in inverted in, commas. Inverted commas, yes. Yes. You can probably make the point that he goes from sort of defeated, broken man to suddenly regaining his vim quite quickly. Yes, and I can see what they're trying to do there, and that is that making her his daughter proves to him that there's some things worth fighting He's for. He's finally found something that, that he wants to fight for. Yeah, yeah. It, it probably is a bit down for her that she spent seven years in exile and it takes a bunch of space Arabs to threaten her before he <laughs> realises she's worth fighting for, but that is what it takes and he does do it. And you sort of get this idea that by the end of the episode, Sarkov is going to go back to Lindor, he will be restored to power by Blake and they'll all live happily ever after. This is one of the earliest cases of something that we'll see a lot of in Blake 7, though, where there is actually something very interesting to be speculated about as to what happens next. Yes, because the episode really does just end. They teleport down. Now, I mean, how do you know that they don't just get rounded up and drop back on the... Uh... Yeah, 
Nameless Planet a week later, where he's captured by one of the pursuing factions and they're like, well, we can't have power if you're here, so let's take you off the back and Roman of you. Yes, exactly. On the other hand, if he is restored to power, do the Federation go, well, we've just invested 12 years in this. Uh, That hasn't worked, so I guess it's the military after all. Mm, Exactly. Yeah, just some interesting thoughts we had there. We've spoken about the character. Let's speak about the actor, because I think this is one of those occasions where the guest star is a big enough name and a big enough part of the episode that we need to do it as part of the body. Yes, he would have been a very good get for them. Oh, a huge get. Mm. So we are, of course, talking about T.P. McKenna. Yes, Thomas Patrick McKenna. Now, he's got a list of credits going back to 1959. Unusually for an actor of that era, he actually mixes almost um, 50-50 at this stage film and television. Yes, plus he did a lot of stage work as well. He started his career in Ireland, and for the first, I think, several years, he almost exclusively acted on the stage. Yes, definitely had a reputation there, but a lot of actors at this stage who either became a film actor Mm. or a TV actor, or maybe a film actor whose career wanes and you sort of reluctantly go back to television. Yes. As did happen to a number of actors. But he just flipped between, I guess, all the dramatic genres really effectively. Now, his credits on TV go back to 1959. Lots of films. In terms of genre stuff, there's three episodes of The Avengers. There's some colour. He did 20 episodes of Crown Court. Lots of obscure little stuff as well, like he was in the Paul McGann show Give Us a Break. Yes, for example, he was. Which, you know, wasn't exactly a, um, a prime-time success. <laughs> oh, I love It's a nice break. show, but it's not a big piece of TV <laughs> no, history. No, it wasn't, no. He's in an episode of Rumpole of the Bailey, mm-hmm. uh, right towards the end of the run there. He plays a chef. And, of course, he turns up in Doctor Who, the greatest show in the galaxy. Yes. That's the name of the story, not actually my description of Doctor <laughs> Who. <laughs> we all know that's Blake Seven. I just want to make the point, though, that When you look at his career early on, particularly in the films, you can see why he was such a big deal and had such Mm. a big reputation. It does seem a little bit, though, by the time he's in this to an extent, but certainly by the time he's in Doctor Who, Rumpole, that sort of thing, he's kind of just playing the T.P. McKenna character. Mm. He played a lot of authority figures. Yeah. So like magistrates, policemen, judges, clergy. Yeah, he played a very similar type of character. And I don't think he was typecast in the sense that he couldn't get work, Mm. but I think there was very much a, oh, this is a T.P. McKenna character, let's get him in. Yes. I did want to flag his work in Callan because he has quite quite a pivotal role, really, in Callan. He is the Eastern Bloc or Russian spy in the last season of Callan. There is a storyline there where Callan's captured and he's part of a prisoner exchange for the spy called Richmond, who is T.P. McKinnon's character. And later on in the last three-part story, at the very end of Callum is where the British intelligence capture Richmond again and he's given to Callum to debrief and escapes and hilarity does not ensue. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen a lot of Callum, but I have seen a couple of the T.P. McKenna episodes. And yeah. Yes, they are very impressive. Yeah, and he is really good in that. Yes, his performance here, I don't know how you feel, Richard, I feel that he is kind of just playing it fairly straight down the line and I'm not going to criticise him for that I have to criticise the director for that I don't think that the director and the actor have really had the time to, to work to, through to work out what this guy is and what is his motivation how does it work no and probably so you not. get a really not a flat performance it's an alive performance but it's just a very 
by numbers, if you like, before. It's probably a function, I think, of the, simply just the sheer pressure they're under to get these in the can. Yeah, but all of that said, if we'd had an actor with less gravitas than McKenna has, mm. that would have been a very weak character, I think. Oh, I think so. No, look, I think he's perfectly good in this. Yeah, he's perfectly good. Look, he does raise mm. the character and give, as I say, a bit of gravitas. Mm. It all just doesn't quite work. But a big name for the episode. Yes. So having dealt with the Lindor strategy and Sarkov, mm. we now need to talk about the B-plot, which I've put in inverted commas here as the Space Arabs. Yes. It starts off a bit interesting. There's a mysterious ship, and of course the crew are suspicious. And you can probably draw a line back to last week's episode. Gan now perhaps has a guilt complex over what happened. You notice as soon as he the ship is in trouble, he's very clear he wants to go over and help. The others are all suspicious, and he says, oh, it's okay, well, if it turns out it's bad, you can fire on them. And, of course, they do the, well, hang on, you do understand what that means, don't you? <laughs> and he's like, yes. Let me go across and get it. If it is a trap, I'll warn you. Then Villa can open fire. With you on board? If necessary. Are you feeling all right? Fine. You would give the instruction for your own death. You expect us to believe that? Yes, I expect you to believe that. You see that slightly incredulous look Paul Darrow gives him. No, come on. <laughs> so look, this is another example of what we've been talking about. I agree the setup for it is actually very interesting. Mm. The way that they have the Amiguns coming aboard the Liberator, they fake Gan's voice, you get then yep. the Liberator. And actually, well, the really interesting director, you know, we're not going to kick the director the whole time, there's a really interesting directorial choice there. Yes. Where you actually see... Villa get on the communicator to warn Avon yes, not to that, bring him up. Mm. Then time sort of rewinds a few seconds. And you actually hear Villa over the communicator just as they're working the yeah. teleport control. And I have to say, I'll put a, a big shout out to Michael Keating. He is really, really good in that scene. You get that whole Villa panicking type thing. And then he has his little snide comments with Zen. And then there's that whole thing where he's just standing there. You can see he's visibly trying to steel himself to go down and try and investigate what's actually happening. Yeah, he has that moment first of... Is it quicker for me to get on the communicator or run to them? Yep. He goes for the communicator, nothing happens, and then, yeah, that, okay, I've got to investigate. He puts the gun on, he does the gun up. One time while he's telling Zen he's a bastard. Yep. Uh, And then there's just that, okay, and you can see he screws his face up like, I've got to do this. The plot starts off very well. There's some interesting ideas in here. Let's have the discussion, though. Someone has made the decision to dress them as space Arabs. They've got that stereotypical... Arabian headdress and garments on. Yes. They've been made out of, you know, satiny, spacey material, though. Yeah, I... And they've cast Indians to play them all. That's probably the note I had, and I said at the top about the casual 70s racism, because these are the first non-WASP people we have seen in the Black 7 universe, and A, they're the bad guys, and B, they're dressed in those costumes. It's certainly not something you would do now. Look, I'm not really one to kick 40-year-old TV. No, no. I appreciate different time, etc. But I do think that is a fairly poor choice. Yeah, I agree as well. I'm not somebody to kick shows for that either. But you have to make the comment that the clear intent here is, hey, if we cast Asian actors and put them in stereotypical Arabian costumes, 
that will quickly signal to the audience these are bad guys and then we're going to give them all these very avaricious lines about selling the grandma and everything yes and again that's playing into a uh, darker thread of the British zeitgeist at that time and we'll talk about that when we get to our 70s subject where what that was about but yeah there's no doubt that they've been cast to be coded as bad for their yeah as I said I think that is a very unfortunate choice Oh, yeah, look, I'm with you as well. I mean, you know, let's face it, this was going out at the same time as the Black and White Minstrel Show. Well, yeah, would have only just finished, I think. I don't like going and kicking a show for not having the social standards of 2018. Mm. But I think on this one, you kind of have to give it a little bit of a kick. And it's not helped by the fact that the B-plot in which we have the Amigans is... Again, if this was sort of worked up to be an episode of its own... There might have been mm. something in it, but it's just so perfunctory. Well, that's a note I did have, because it is really quite interesting, and it's one of, about the only time the series really touches on the idea. I mean, Blake and his crew are wanted criminals. Yes. And you would think that there would be bounty hunters, criminal elements, whatever, who would be more than happy to try and capture them and turn them in for the bounty. Yeah, you could basically imagine Servalan with their own version of that scene from The Empire Strikes Back of just, why am I wasting my time? Go get me a few bounty hunters and tell them... That's right, Travis clearly is not up to this. Yeah. Call him the Blake 7 version of Boba Fett. Yeah, well, I guess Tarvin is Blake 7's Boba Fett. (laughs) (laughs) Think about that one, kids. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I do think that was quite interesting. And indeed, they do make the point. These guys succeed in capturing Blake and the ship intact where the Federation have failed. Yeah, so they're actually given quite a bit of kudos for that. Yeah. They're trying to be good at their jobs. Mm. I mean, it is a bit sad that given they've only got one teleport bracelet, clearly one bloke with a smoke gun (laughs) manages to take over the ship. But, yes. Yes. (laughs) The other aspect of their plan is that whole exploding collar thing, Mm. which it's a bit of a sci-fi cliche, not Blake Seven's fault, but I mean, I can instantly think of a few other shows that have done something like that. The control collar, yeah. There was that wonderful one in the Babylon 5 episode Parliament of Dreams that they put on Jakarta. Oh, yes, that's right. And the Toth gets it off him by kicking him so hard she breaks it. (laughs) The Star Trek Next Generation episode Gambit, the two-parter, has a very similar concept as well, Mm. although that's built into the person, but it's the same sort of, you know, Mm. captain with a device thing. I do like the fact that it's filler that can get them out of it. He's extremely nervous that he's playing with an explosive, Yeah, basically. I mean, look, you do get the wonderful line where Blake trusts him because, let's say, it's his life on the line as well. I can't do it, Blake. Keep trying. Look, there are two ways to set this thing off. One is that control box they all carry. Microwave transmitter. Just point it in the direction of the neckband and press the button. The other way is to force the lock. You're not going to force it, are you? And if I get it wrong, bang, no head. I trust you. And if it blows up and I'm right behind you... That's why I trust you. And that scene is also accompanied by the lovely part where Avon just decides he's not going to sit around doing nothing and goes to crack the door and actually manages to do it. Not as quickly and efficiently as Villa would, but he does get the job No, done. that was really good. Villa sort of does it. Well, now I've got the collar off. Now I'll show how good I am by getting us out by unlocking the door. Oh, you have actually opened it. <laughs> I thought that was really good. And again, he is really, really good in that scene yes. where he's sitting there because you get that real idea where he's panicking. He really doesn't know whether he can open these collars. You have the bit where Gan sort of, you know, in frustration throws down whatever it is he's holding and they all sort of jump. And I thought Michael Keating was really good in this. In the end, the Amigans are defeated partly because Blake is able to get out of where he's being held. Yes. But also because Sarkov 
you know, this is where the plots come together. Sarkov finds it something worth fighting for. And it is Sarkov that resolves the situation, really, not Blake and the crew. It is. And again, I reckon they would have liked to have done another couple of takes of that conclusion because there's the bit where Blake is sort of just laughing at Tarvin mm. and it just doesn't quite come together and the timing's not quite right. And no. You get the feeling, again, had there been a bit more time, yeah. that would have been a couple I, more takes. I, I know that... When they're having their big dramatic scene, the big showdown, you can actually see Gareth Thomas and Sally Nevette just right on the edge of the set, clearly waiting for their cue. Yeah, it's very obvious that Blake is aware that in the script, Sarkoff is going to shoot the Amigan so he doesn't have to. Yes. It doesn't quite play out like he really feels as though he needs to be there. Yeah, Sarkov obviously, when his daughter is directly threatened, look, he clearly recovers his mojo, so to speak. Yep. They have, obviously, that big philosophical discussion about whether Tarvin is the better man or not. He won because he's not the better man, clearly, because he couldn't lie straight in bed, really. Yeah, which is interesting. I wonder if that's a Chris Boucher insertion, because mm. it certainly feels like one. It does. And again, it sort of shows Sarkov at that point is clearly utterly defeated. He's just accepted the finality of it. Well, Tarvin and the Amagons are clearly unscrupulous. They have no morals. They are not the better person, but because of that, they are able to win and Really, this is what happened to me, Rick Larch. That's exactly right. I was just going to say, even though they have the conversation about Tarvin versus Blake, mm. it's actually about Tarvin versus Sarkov. Yes. Blake shamed him. And in the end, lost. It was inevitable. Inevitable. I am the better man. You, selfish, greedy, vicious. I won. Yes, my dear, you see, it's a, it's a paradox. He won because he is not the better man. What? And yet by winning, it seems, he becomes a prince among people. Among my people. Does it matter which people, Tarvin? Do you care? One aspect of the plot we haven't mentioned, and I want to give it a few minutes of attention, is Jenna. Mm. The last couple of plot points I've talked about being very good ideas, mm. not executed that well. Yep. I actually think this is a bad idea that doesn't work at all. And is probably, aside from the casual racism, this is probably the weakest part mm. of the episode. I don't know whether the idea of the plot is that as an audience we genuinely believe that Jenna has changed sides for a bit, or I don't know whether we're meant to think that she's bluffing. It's really played ambiguously. If, if it's meant to be the former, we're not remotely convinced at any stage. No, the crew are meant, other than Blake, who obviously explicitly says that he's not sure. Yes. We are clearly meant to believe the others feel she's betrayed them. Yes, and the problem is they have that conversation after we've seen Jenna show that she's not betraying them. No. So if they'd had that a little bit earlier, if the audience was just maybe sort of going, oh, maybe Jenna has turned here, then Avon and Kelly and the others say, yes, she has turned, she's really, you know, she's gone yeah. bad. And then you had Jenna show that she wasn't, that would be a better cycle of thing. Early in the episode, she and Blake are obviously quite friendly. Yes. When he's telling, you know, not to take any risks and he has a little joke about, oh, we're doing enough of that down here. And at the end, she's very jealous, clearly, of Tice and is very keen to get Tice off the ship. You know, when Tice sort of says, goodbye, Blake, I'll never forget you or whatever it is. And Jenna is very much, no, goodbye, and, <laughs> and pushes the button to get rid of her. Yes. I did have the note that this sort of feels in some ways like it belongs earlier in the season when Jenna is still that harder-edged character and there is still a bit of ambiguity towards, you know, she's questioning whether she should be with Blake. That sort of thing we talked about in a couple of the earlier episodes where she may not actually like Avon particularly, but deep down you get the impression she actually knows he's right, that Blake is going to get them all killed. Yeah, I agree. It would have worked earlier in the season. It might have worked better if it was Callie. Perhaps. 
And again, probably earlier in the season when they're all still suspicious of her a bit. Or even how would it have played out if it had been Avon? Probably a lot better because you'd seen him last week. He loses his bolt hole. Yes. And worked out, well, before he loses it also, he works out that probably it wouldn't have been a particularly good bolt hole anyway. He is clearly shown to be the antagonist among the crew. Yeah, I think Avon could have been interesting because you mm. could have had Avon betray them. You yep. could then have just had a little conversation like, don't forget, you owe me a million credits mm. or whatever. That, that, yeah. that, that's my price for betraying them. And, you, know, you could even have Sarkov to have, you sold your friends for a million credits. And, uh, you yep. can see that scene playing out. Yeah. And then Avon coming back and being the hero. Yes. That could have been quite interesting. Interesting point as well, I just noted though, Tarvin does have control of the Liberator, so presumably Jenna has actually given him access to Zen. Yes, indeed. They're sort of pushing each other a bit around their previous relationship and testing each other out. Tarvin makes the point that, you know, we used to be really close once. Do you remember that planet where we had dated the 300 customs guards? Where she plays it really cool. It's like, well, why should I remember it? Was it particularly special? Do you really care? Yeah, unfortunately, I just think it's the aspect of the plot that no, look, doesn't, I think, doesn't work. Like last week, I think it's probably the third act, really, that lets it down. Yep, so before we talk production, just a couple of little general points that uh, I had here, that, and I'm sure you've got a couple as well. Mm. I did note we had another iteration of the teleport doesn't work at a yeah. dramatic moment. <laughs> yes. We, we mentioned a little bit earlier, but the location work is quite good, and there are plenty of guards in that tower. Yep. It is a good location. So yes, it is. It, Give it points for that. Kelly using her telepathy, I'll give it points for that. That actually is done very well. They do remember it this week, yes. We were talking about Jenna a minute ago. I did want to put a note out to her space combat skills. That's a very sort of stage fight, really. Oh, yeah, I noted that, actually. There are a couple examples here of both guards and abiguns who just get pushed over and faint. Yes. Yeah, it's pretty bad. One kick of the stomach is enough to drop one of them. Yeah. Just with the Amagons, they are clearly known around the galaxy as being pirates and smugglers and not very nice people. Yeah, it's that kind of awful science fiction cliche that an entire population is... You know, they, they are all space pirates or they're mm. all mercenaries or yes. something. I mean, it's not even like the Ferengi where at least it's a cultural thing. It's just, well, everyone on that planet grows up to be a space pirate. Yes, indeed. Yes, look, before we go into our regular segments, just a couple of quick production notes. We mentioned earlier about Kelly's jump off the tower. Yes. Uh, or the stunt person's jump off the tower. We'll put out our weekly shout out to our friend at the Making Blake 7 <laughs> site. He does say that Kelly's stunt double, who was later by the number of Roberta Gibbs, injures herself quite badly and you can see it when she jumps you notice she falls backwards when oh, she okay, nearly yes, lands yes. on that and they cut away apparently according to Mike Black Seven side, she actually bit through her tongue and was cool. in hospital for quite some time I mean it looks very good the fall so look I guess she suffered for her art well I did point out earlier that the fall's very good but then she doesn't actually go and strike the guard no then there's a hard cut so now I know why now I feel a little bit cruel saying it a couple other notes I had. The Federation helmet that Cheney wears, that's a static prop, and they actually to have it so you could see his face and he could talk, they actually cut the Perspex bit of the mask in half and folded right. it up so it didn't fold down. So it actually, you just had to walk around with that thing sticking out in front of him the whole time. <laughs> One final note I did have. If you watch, after she comes up onto the Liberator, Tice gets both a new hairstyle and a new costume. I didn't notice that, but thank you for pointing it out. Well, you notice she's wearing that bright red jacket. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when she's down on the planet. When they're on the flight deck, which is the second day's studio recording, yeah, she was given a new hairstyle and a new black costume, which is a bit unusual, but anyway, there you go. On to our regular segment. So, our first regular segment is guest stars. 
Yes. We mentioned T.P. McKenna, so we won't go over him again. So we'll talk about Mark Zuba, who plays Tarvin. Now, I will say, we've sort of said that, look, that was an unfortunate way that those characters were depicted and fairly ordinary costumes, etc. I have to say, he is actually really good in this. He's got a real charisma. Yeah, he's very charming and he plays it not straight. He plays it at exactly the level it needs to be, mm. which is not too over the top as to be stupid. No. And not so under performing as to not work he he pitches it really really well and he rises above a lot of the dialogue in the costume and it's quite believable and i think that's a reflection of the fact that he had a very long career he had a lot of work over the course of his career yes he did both in england and in bollywood i think as well that's right again some of his more notable stuff he was in jason king the uneven line he did two episodes of space 1979 he was in several episodes of angels robin hood prince of thieves he turns up in that. It's a minor right. role, but he's yeah. in that. Yeah, okay. And four episodes of The Bill. Right. But yeah, he's got a career that spans several countries and several decades. Well, sad to say, I don't really remember him a lot of the other stuff you read out there. But yeah, I, again, I thought he was really good in this. Yeah, another person who has a very long career. I'm not going to go through it all because he only has a couple of lines in this. But Derek Branch, who plays the other credited Amigan, so I assume he's the one that... The one with the other speaking part. The one with the other speaking part. He also was born in India. So this is actually one of his first roles, but he did go on to have a very long career. Yes, well, I have actually got a shout-out for him because he was in Father Ted. He's Father Hernandez. <laughs> okay. Yes, which is actually, interestingly enough, is a Latin American priest who comes and stays. It's the episode where they have to go and protest against the obscene religious film. He's the Latin American priest staying with them at the start of the episode. And the other one, of course, we have to talk about is Corinthia West as Tice. Now, she's had a very interesting career because she, as well as being an actress, she's a model, uh, journalist, and, and probably best known, I think, now for her photography work. Yes. But in terms of acting, she hasn't got a huge number of credits because she was very mm. multifaceted in her career. But to give an example of the variation in them, on the one hand, she did a lot of stuff with Rutland Weekend Television. Oh, yeah. With Eric Idle. Uh, and on the other, she was in Crime and Punishment. Again, she did quite a bit of stage work at various points in her acting career. But, yeah, I think she's best known now probably for her photographic career. Her father was a diplomat. He worked for NATO, I think, for a period. He was posted to America around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So she, as a child, sort of got to hobnob with the Kennedys and Hollywood stars and visiting UK VIPs and all that sort of stuff. So she sort of developed a fairly famous circle of friends who she then really sort of started photographing as she would travel about with them. And some of her work, she had quite famous studies of pop stars and royalty and actors from all around the world. Okay, fair enough. Mm. Uh, We'll move on then to the Liberator database. Yes. I've got one note here, and that's just a simple one. We note something that the Liberator can't do, and that is Zen doesn't have internal sensors to track the crew. Or he chooses not to. Yes. I I, I took it as very much that he didn't have the capacity. No, he can't. He can't, yeah. The other one I had, and it's a shout back to Seek, Locate, Destroy, which again perhaps reinforces this idea that this script maybe belonged a little earlier in the season, that Blake specifically mentioned that they had the cipher machine and for a time they were clearly able to read the Federation's things and while they've been busy deciphering it, the Lindor strategy is one that came up. Yeah, that was a nice little shout back and Mm. again, it helps to contribute, even in what is a very standalone episode, Mm. it does help to contribute that idea that this is an ongoing story. Yes, Our next segment is, look, it was the 1970s. A couple of points I want to make here, and a lot of it does go down to the Amigans or the Space Arabs, as we've been calling them, and where that's coming from. (laughs) I mean, this episode certainly does not remotely stand alone 
in terms of this depiction. You look at the goodies episode, it might as well be string. Yes. Uh, you look at the Yes Minister episode, The Moral Dimension. Oh, yes. Which is several years after this. Yep. You get that sort of portrayal. But what you actually look at is, in terms of where the Western, or particularly the British mm. interaction with the Arabian Peninsula was at this time, does for a large part centre around OPEC, which is the Organisation of Petroleum Exporting Countries, mm-hmm. founded in 1960. But at 1975, it's sort of entered the end of its expansion phase and is now really at the point where it's flexing its muscles. 1973 is when you had the Arabian majority plus Egypt and Syria actually did start to do the cuts in terms of oil supply, yep. the embargoes to the United States, and all that issue that went on over the Yom Kippur War. Yep. So you get a lot of that sort of stuff. The hostage siege takes place in 1975, where they had that siege in Vienna around the OPEC buildings. Mm-hmm. So this stuff was very, very much in the zeitgeist at the time. There were lots of links between... OPEC and Palestine yep. and some of the terrorist stuff that was going on there. Not that they were directly funding terrorism, but there were the links. You get the whole stuff with Carlos the Jackal, who was also involved oh, in the yes. hostage siege. So all of that sort of stuff is going on. And I think that's where that sense of Arabian peoples being slightly nefarious, very avaricious, that is all sort of coming from <laughs> that all control thing there was very much in the zeitgeist. In terms of the actual Lindor strategy, I mentioned earlier the Japanese use of the Emperor of China mm-hmm. during World War II. I actually was reminded very much of the way that the West restored the Shah of Iran. That actually was a note I had because you're not all that far from the revolution where the Ayatollah... No. So the Shah of Iran was actually uh, restored in 1967. Mm-hmm. And it's only a year after this goes out that the Islamic revolution takes place in Iran. Yes. And he's kicked out of his throne. He dies a few years later. So they were a couple of examples I thought that could have inspired this story... And I also need to mention that this is the 70s and the budget's small, and so the very expensive old car they have is crashed off-screen by sound Uh, effects. Indeed. (laughs) That would have had to have gone back to its owners. And on that note, we move on to GAN Watch. Now, we've touched a bit about GAN on this one, but you do, as you said, Richard, see the follow-up here to his issues in Breakdown. But after that, he again sadly disappears really he does our first introduction really is the other characters are talking on the flight deck and he's just in the background sort of liberated the spacecraft liberated the spacecraft <laughs> liberated the spacecraft liberated the spacecraft respond please and he just does that you could make the joke about it. he's paid maybe by the number of words he uses so he just <laughs> keeps doing it but you're right once he's done that and they have the whole thing about whether he'll teleport over to the ship or not he really does. They've sort of written a couple of things, obviously, for him to do when they're in the lock-up room. You know, and he has his line about he'd just like to get his hands on somebody. Yeah, but he plays no role in the escape. He plays no. no role in taking the Liberator back. He doesn't interact with Sarkov at all. So he is very much surplus to requirements here. And indeed, even the idea of him going across to the stranded vessel, given that we've just re-established he can't kill anyone. No, that's right. It's just, yeah. And as we said last week, I really do think Breakdown is the point where the series really, sadly, turns its back on Gam. And that's in evidence here. Yeah. He is, unfortunately, completely surplus to requirements. Pretty much, yeah. And our final segment, what cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? I'm going to open up with his exchange with Villa, where Villa starts off by saying, I'm entitled to my opinion. (laughs) And Avon replies, it's your assumption that the rest of us are entitled to it that he's irritating. Yes. He has a couple others too. I mean, they're talking about they're suspicious of the ship. Again, sort of makes a point about, well, it's not a very good trap. We're already suspicious. The test is not whether you are suspicious. It is whether you are caught. <laughs> I did have that line. I noted not a line, but 
there's a smile that he gives when Villa just cracks and he actually shouts at Avon. Yes. And Avon just sort of looks at him in with this kind of, that was actually quite funny. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's not angry at Villa. He's not going to shout back at Villa. He's just like, ooh, you snapped. <laughs> How funny. Oh, yeah. oh, when they're in the room and he tells him to shut up. Avon, shut up. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I did think that was quite good. He knows he's got under Villa's skin. And we will see their relationship start to develop, particularly once Robert Holmes starts writing for the series next season. Yes. And of course, while they're in the lockup, there is that bit where Blake's worried about taking back the Liberator and everything, and Avon just points to his collar and just says, Villa, take this off. (laughs) Very definite. I'm next. Yes. And then Kelly's like, hurry, Villa. I'm next. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, actually, one final line I did have for Avon. When Blake wakes up after being gassed, he sort of says, that was stupid. It's like, none of us displayed conspicuous intelligence on this occasion. (laughs) This is actually a very good example of, even in an episode where, let's face it, Avon doesn't have a lot to do. No, not really. Chris Boucher still makes sure he gets a few cool lines to keep him going. Yep. Yeah, so, look, we've reached the end of our discussion about Bounty. Mm. I stand by my view at the start. I do generally think this is the weakest episode Probably the first half of this series. I don't think we had a worse one until in the early season three. Oh, we can debate that as we go through. Yeah, them. I might have a couple of candidates, but <laughs> yes, I would probably say, yeah, I think this is the weakest episode of series one or series A. However, we have at least acknowledged, I think fairly, that there are some very good ideas. There are some nice performances. There are still some nice moments. That, Unfortunately, it doesn't come together. It is clearly rushed. Mm. It is clearly underdone and it is clearly under-budgeted. And this is a rare occasion where it really just does show. And I'm not going to kick the episode for it, but it is what it is. Yeah, I think so. That's a pretty good summation. There really, there should have been another way. Unfortunately, in the rush to get the series finished, this is the episode, I think, that got squeezed. Yes. But before we move on, we will do our Player of the Week. Richard, who was your pick? I've got an honourable mention and the actual player. So look, I'm going to give the honourable mention to Mark Zuber as Tarvin, because I thought he really turned what could have been a, a horribly stereotyped role into something actually better than that. Snap. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I actually had Mark Zuber as my player of the week. Oh, there you go. Uh, so look, I'll say now, I echo what you said. He rose above a very difficult character yep. and a very bad costume. Mm. He was charming. He was interesting. In another person's hands, that could have been really cringeworthy. And I just thought he was a really good actor and in, in a difficult episode. Yeah, unfortunately, it's, it's a shame the series really didn't find something better for him to do in a better episode. No, but I think he deserves the kudos this week. So he was your honourable mention and my pick. Who's yep. your actual pick, Richard? I actually gave it to Michael Keating and Villa. In some ways, doesn't get an awful lot to do this episode. But Michael Keating really turns Villa's part into something a lot bigger. You watch him go through the range of emotions when he realises he's alone on the flight deck and he doesn't know what's happened to the others. Yes. He really sells that tension when he's trying to unpick Blake's neck collar. Yes. And, yeah, I thought he was really, really good. Yeah, look, I agree. I gave him my pick last episode in Breakdown Mm. for much the same sort of reason. I think we are starting to see... In the tail end of this series, Villa really coming to the fore. Yeah. Michael Keating really becoming quite confident with what he's doing. I think so. Now I think he's really worked out how he wants to play it. Yes. So, yeah, look, even in a difficult episode, we found mm. a couple of good performances, and I'm very happy with both of them. Mm-hmm. Now, we've mentioned a few times, of course, that this episode got squeezed. Yep. And it particularly got squeezed, I think, because some extra attention had to go on the big two-parter that was taking out the season. Yep. And, you know, you couldn't ignore them, so that's where Blanty really got squeezed. And we'll be talking about the... First of that two-parter, next time we're here with Deliverance. Mm. So, I've been Dave. I've been Richard. 
set course for Cephalon. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. Let's be silly. Answer me, one of you. I shall come out in a rash. Zen, has something happened to them? Data is not available. I don't want data. I want to know what's happening. It will be necessary for you to make a personal investigation. Well, you're a big help. Personal investigation. Personal investigation. The next time Avon wants to make a personal investigation on how you work, I shall make a personal point of handing in the instruments personally. <laughs>